0: Before we get going into your Hockey IQ podcast episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Rapid Shot. Rapid Shot is the smart shooting lane. Uh, It's like a batting cage for hockey players. Very cool. Tracks your shot in three ways accuracy, shot speed, and reaction time. Uh, Easy to use. Uh, Actually, I used it when I played and was growing up. Very easy. Simply scan your phone in, select your settings, and start shooting. Uh, You can see your stats on the app and online. You can check them out at rapidshot.com. A great small business. I actually grew up with one of the owner's sons and have played with all the family members by now, uh, just in local pickups here in Ohio. Very cool local business. Awesome product. I love it. I know quite a few NHLers have them in their homes. Uh, A lot of D1 programs have it at their rinks. So you have to check this out. Rapidshot.com. Check it out. Rapidshot. Thank you so much for sponsoring our podcast. On the Hockey IQ podcast today, we bring on Parker Burgess. He is the head coach of the Janeville Jets in the NAHL. Uh, happy to have you on. Welcome.
1: Greg, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be on.
0: Well, you've got a uh, quite the journey here. So you were at St. Thomas uh, and then you went to Nichols College and then with Janesville. So you, you've kind of been in this uh, similar sphere for quite some time. I'm curious uh, what that journey has been like for you.
1: It's been a unique one. For sure. I, I, you know, you and I were chatting before a little bit. I don't think any coach as you continue on this path and this journey has a normal journey or a normal path to wherever they've gone to. There's a lot of side roads and bumps and obstacles that kind of come about as you go year to year. You know, I, I grew up in Alberta and just like a lot of, you know, young Canadians, hockey was definitely a rite of passage and something that we all did as youngsters and uh, grew a passion for it. I had a a family that loved hockey and just the kind of the old prototypical hockey night in Canada every Saturday and uh, spend a lot of time at the rink and uh, all my buddies were hockey players and played junior up in Canada and never, you know, was probably never good enough to play major junior. Uh, So I started looking at the collegiate route and uh, had some – you know, family, friends and people that we knew that were able to go to school and make hockey work for them and get an education out of it. And I think that appealed not only to me, but to my parents. And so, uh, I had a lot of great guidance and, uh, started off my junior career in the BCHL and, uh, probably thought I was a little better than I was and got humbled pretty quick and ended up getting traded a couple of times. And eventually Settled in Olds, Alberta for the Olds Grizzlies in the Alberta Junior Hockey League and uh, finished off my 19 year old year there and uh, did my 20 year old uh, year as well and uh, got an opportunity. It took all the way till the end of the season, but got an opportunity to uh, commit to a Division One school in the US and uh, ended up going to Robert Morris for two years. And then uh, from there, it just wasn't a great fit, probably on the, on the ice and off the ice and um, ended up Uh, transferring to the university of St. Thomas in Minnesota. And I hadn't heard much about it, but I had somebody tell me like, as you're driving from, you know, from Pittsburgh where Robert Morris was, as you're driving West back to Calgary, you should stop at St. Thomas and see the school and meet the coaches. And it'd be a really great option to play division three hockey there. And so I did, I stopped there and I met the coaches and I saw the beautiful campus and uh, the, I knew about the academics and the hockey program had a ton of success. And it was in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is a, you know, a beautiful city and was a little bit bigger and kind of what did I want, what I wanted, uh, from a campus community feel. And, um, there were some good looking girls on campus too. So that didn't hurt and ended up transferring there and played two years, uh, for Terry Skrypek, who's a legendary coach, uh, in the D3 ranks in the Minnesota coaching ranks. And, uh, as I graduated, you know, we had a really great year. My senior year, and went to the uh, NCAA tournament and won a Mayak championship. And I felt like after my transfer from Division One to Division Three, I kind of had that crisis that a lot of players go through, where you know maybe this is the end, and I don't have the passion anymore. And uh, you know, I, I was encouraged by my father to like make sure that I when I Get done playing hockey. It's on my terms, and uh, the game had given me so much, you know, and taken me to a lot of cool places and a lot of great relationships with teammates and coaches. And so that was a, a talk that we had in Pittsburgh one night that was, you know, encouraged me to continue my career and play Division Three hockey. And um, I had such a wonderful experience doing it, uh, being at St. Thomas and playing for Terry Scribeck and Jeff Besser, who ended up taking over the program. Uh, it really just reinvigorated my passion and love for the game. And I got to play with some great players and great teammates and win some hockey games. And I got to play and and contribute to a really cool thing. And uh, so then after that, my senior year, the head coach, Terry Skrypek retires. And uh, after 30, 35 years, and the uh, longtime assistant took over and he became the head coach. And I was mulling over some oil and gas jobs up in Alberta or some minor, minor pro league uh, hockey opportunities. And uh, when I chatted with my family and and said that there was an opportunity for me to get a master's degree and maybe coach hockey and get to continue being a part of the game, uh, it's something that, you know, is definitely best. And uh, so I got into coaching that way. It wasn't, I don't think I really had this, I'm going to be a coach. Like, that's my lifelong dream. Like, you know, there's definitely some, factors that played into like me getting into coaching but it wasn't like a childhood dream or anything like that and I got an opportunity at St. Thomas and I was there for five years and coached uh, a lot of great players and learned so much from from Duke uh, who was there for a long time and just how to treat people uh, he was a great great mentor and uh, I, I you know I had a few opportunities kind of throughout being at St. Thomas but I'm also a Canadian and I didn't have the necessary visas and stuff to pursue. I was on a sponsored visa at St. Thomas, so I couldn't really go anywhere. And uh, eventually I was 29 years old and um, I got an opportunity to be the the head coach at Nichols College out in New England uh, at a division three school. And the really kind of the funny part about that was the, the reason I got my foot in the door at that at that school. And with that job was I had met uh, a young coach who was right around my age at a showcase. We ended up going for beers together. And three years later, I was still at St. Thomas and he was at Nichols as the head coach. And when he moved on to go to the university in New England, uh, his name's Kevin Swallow. He kind of said, Hey, listen, I recommended you for the job. And if you're interested, it's yours. So that's how I got my first head coaching gig. And that's, that's amazing, uh,
0: just going out for beers, getting to know a guy, and he gives you a recommendation. That's that's awesome. I'm curious, too, what do you think is the biggest part about Division Three hockey? Because I feel like a lot of people talk about D1, 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 and they don't realize how good
1: Division Three hockey is. Yeah, D3 hockey is awesome. It, it definitely doesn't get the credit um, that it deserves. There's so many good players, and you know a lot of them for – a a number of different reasons might not get the opportunity to play division one hockey. You know, it might be, uh, I mean, right now it's the transfer portal and 50 or seniors uh, and, and it could be money or academics or there's a lot of different factors, but D three is it's competitive. Uh, The kids care a lot. I think what's really interesting is, you know, for the majority of the time at the division three level, there's opportunities to play pro hockey after and things like that, but that might be, you know, the players are pretty aware that this might be it for my career in competitive hockey. And because of that, I think you see in a lot of the, on a lot of those teams, the egos kind of get cast aside and they really care about winning for the school and for each other and becomes less about points and, you know, the the individual awards. And it's really just like, it's, it's really A really pure version of hockey. Um, I enjoyed my time as a player and and I really enjoyed my time as a coach at the division three level. I think if you can get into coaching and and it is at the division three level, like you're preparing yourself because there's just so many challenges that you're going to fight in division three. It's there's, there's no, there's no scholarships, So every school costs a different amount of money. And some of these you know, some of the programs have beautiful rinks on campus. And when I was at Nichols, our rink was in a different state, you know, it was actually in Rhode Island and the school was in mass. So you have this wide range. Some schools are 900 kids and some kids schools are, you know, 20,000. So you're cutting your teeth and you're learning a lot. And chances are, if you're an assistant coach at the division three level, you're in charge of recruiting. You're probably the equipment manager. You do all the travel, you reconcile receipts, you work contest management for the the university or the college. So you're doing all these, you're wearing all these different hats. You're probably running a social media account. And as you go, those little things that are non-coaching related, um, they really pay dividends down the the road because you have experience just wearing so many hats. And then you appreciate those things more kind of as you go basically running the program. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, but it's, it's a lot of fun too.
0: Yeah. Well, there are some things the head coach does like uh, season preparation and planning for that. So I'm curious, uh, in your role, obviously, uh, pass roles as well go into this, but you know, how do you properly prepare for a competitive season with these type
1: of athletes? So I'm in, I mean, being in junior hockey now, you know, after Nichols, I made the the transition to a head coach in the North American League here in Janesville it's obviously they're both both college and junior hockey or pro hockey it's all coaching hockey but they're very different jobs you know and what you go through in junior hockey in comparison to college is very different and there's no easier or harder or better or worse it's just very different um so I had to really learn you know we have camps now you know and in college, it's just, you know, you might be doing some recruiting or some preseason planning. You know, we have some camps. We, you know, our main camp is in July. So making sure we have a very competitive, you know, high quality main camp is something that's, you know, we've been working hard, you know, since the day after we lost out. Um, that's something we've been preparing for is to have a good main camp. We have a draft that's coming up in June. So, we'll probably have 10 or 11 picks in that draft. And we got to make sure that we're procuring talent and bringing players into Janesville that are going to help us compete next year. Um, and then you start. Well, thinking well let's,
0: let's stop there for a hot second. Sure. Cause I I'm curious to hear about one of the tenders that you recently signed from the great state of Ohio, uh, yeah. go, go, go Buckeyes here in Columbus. Okay. Um, you know, what were the, big things that you were looking for as you were recruiting him or things that stuck out that made you very interested in that player?
1: So we're fortunate. We have in, in Janesville here, we've got a great general manager. Uh, his name's Joe Dibble. He does, you know, with a few of our scouts, the majority of scouting, you know, for a coach, for a coach, it's really hard in a 60 game season for us to get out and see a lot of players. So it's crucial for us to have a great GM and, and scouting staff that helps identify talent Um, And so Ryan was somebody that I know right off the bat for our hockey operations, people was on their radar. Um, I think they saw him early on at a showcase and had heard about him through the, you know, some of the U18 and U16 channels and went out to watch him play. He's a big defenseman. Um, He's the captain of the U18 Columbus Blue Jackets team or the Ohio Blue Jackets. And uh, we had him out to skate and he just fit all the things that we wanted uh, to bring in to our organization. And, you know, he's an Ohio kid. Uh, it's funny, he's a rural Ohio kid. And every Sunday we find out that he, you know, spends three, four, five hours with his dad and they chop wood together. And this kid's got, you know, the big hands and um, tough, you know, he's got the, definitely that farm kid strength to him and he's got a lot of skills. So we're excited about him. We also were very impressed. You know, I think a lot of coaches and recruiters or people that are drafting players or signing players, you know, you look at their elite prospects and nowadays with all the options there are for kids, you know, you look at a kid's elite prospects and one year it's, you know, he's at a hockey academy and then the next year he's with the A program. And then the next year after that, he's with a, a junior team. And then it's on, then he goes back to prep school and there's all these different, the grass is greener somewhere else and they're going to play more somewhere else, or this is promised to them somewhere else, or this is a better way to get a division one scholarship or play pro hockey. So you see these kids just continually changing teams and organizations and moving all over the country for it. And the thing that stuck out to us with Ryan that we talked to him about extensively was how he had been a part of that Ohio blue jackets program since he was a youth. And he never left all the way up until playing on their U18 team and being the team captain. And, you know, he had opportunities to bounce here bounce there um, or go to a different route prep school or high school or junior hockey early or whatever the case may be. And um, there was something to be said that he was loyal to the program that he was in. It obviously loyalty was a, a value that he really cared about. And we just knew that, that's the type of person that we want in our organization. And we know in bringing him in, you know, we're going to be loyal to him and he's going to be very loyal to us. And if things don't go well, or we hit a rough patch, he's not the type of kid that's in your office asking for a trade, you know, he's going to stick it through. So um, awesome kid. We're really excited about.
0: So we're, we're going beyond just the on ice when we're looking to bring in players, correct?
1: Oh yeah. We do our homework. I mean, everybody, I mean, it's pretty simple. Like it takes a lot of really good people to build a culture and it takes a lot of work and it takes very few people to bring that culture down and um, ruin things for everybody. So we make sure we do our homework on and off the ice on the type of people we bring in. And um, it's just, they're a representation of our organization. So it's just as important who they are off the ice as it is on the ice.
0: Good to know. I really enjoy that. Um, And I know that loyalty is important for you guys and doing the right thing up in Janesville. um, Because everyone I talked to has said the same thing that you're always one of the youngest teams and you really have a developmental focus. I'm curious where that comes from, the alignment in the organization to make that possible. I'd love to hear some more about it.
1: Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. You know, that alignment within your organization has to be very clear and that the message of what you're trying to accomplish as an organization that has to be transparent and everybody has to be on the same page. And hockey is a competitive sport. We're in a competitive business and junior hockey is at times it's very much a business just like pro hockey is and college hockey is winning matters. Um, So I think first of all, the ownership group, you know, they're going to set the tone as to what the organization's values are and their philosophy. And from there, you're going to hire people within the business operation side of things and then coaches and general managers that align, like you said, with what is is most valuable for the ownership group. And I'm very fortunate and we're very fortunate here in Janesville that we have a tremendous ownership group with Bill McCaution and Tim Berry, uh, Joe Pavelski, Uh, as one of our minority owners that their top priority in doing this. And it's a huge part of why I took this job um, was first and foremost, the development and the advancement of the player. And with that, we really believe that you can achieve competitive excellence and win a championship. Now we haven't done that yet. And I think in the North American league, it's true, like older teams win and we're trying to do it a little differently and we haven't got there yet, but we are developing players on and off the ice. Uh, And, you know, we ended up this season with 15 division one committed players. Uh, You know, we had five players selected in the USHL draft this week. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we just, we have, that's, that's kind of, and that's,
0: that's very high, right? 15 is a pretty high number for the NA going to division one off
1: of one roster. I would think so yeah I mean based on I don't know if it's the highest I don't look at the other lineup charts but when I look at ours there's there's a lot of logos on it and that's because the kids work hard and we do it do it the right way promoting them to schools and yeah so I think so.
0: Either way, I mean, development is uh, key to getting where you want to go, right? Always just another day better. And uh, I know you uh, are a big proponent of always getting better, looking at things differently and finding a way. So it's, it's got to filter its way down. It's, it's awesome to hear about the alignment you have. Uh, I'm curious about how you best go about that. Are you doing a lot of video? Was a lot of skills practices? What's the off ice look like?
1: It's a combination of all of them for sure. Um, I think we make it really transparent off the bat with the players that, you know, they're not coming to Janesville for vacation, you know, as, as beautiful as Janesville is. And like, you know, you and I were chatting the summers in Wisconsin are great. Uh, The winters can be a little snowy and cold. Um, So they're coming to invest in their career and their development. Like they're going to put the hours in and there may be, you know, other places where you can roll out of bed at 10 AM and, go to the rink 30 minutes before practice and snap it around a little bit and then go play video games. Um, But that's not how we do things in Janesville. And uh, we want players that want to get better and want to put the work in. So we kind of, it's a combination where uh, we're very fortunate. We, you know, we have a team yoga instructor. uh, We have a full time strength and conditioning coach that works with our group. Um, You know, we, we, definitely splice in a lot of those skills practices or we don't even call them skills. I think that's kind of skill sessions is like that trendy word. And I think when you tell the kids skill sessions, they think about, you know, just picking the puck up behind the net and doing the Zegris and the Michigan. And, you know, we call them development practices and, you know, we're very intentional and what are we trying to develop? What skill are we trying to develop when we go out here? So everything has a purpose, same with practice. We're, we're very structured. Uh, Monday, you know, Monday is a yoga day in the morning for the most part. Um, And then we'll do some individual film. And then Monday's our development day. So it's a lot of station work or position specific work or, you know, it could, could be power skating. That could be the skill we're developing that day. And I think as coaches, we've done a good job. Monday's practice is not based on the previous weekend. We have a plan for what we want to improve on, and you know, if we win on Friday and Saturday and we sweep, the plan doesn't change, and let's just play three on three the whole day because we won. And and conversely to that, if we get swept, even if we don't play great hockey, you don't show the players don't show up Monday and get bag skated for two hours. Um, so we have our program and we we stick to it regardless. Now we make adjustments and tweaks along the way. Uh, but we're, again, we're, you know, we we try to take a little bit of the emotion out of it. Um, and then Tuesdays, the kids are in the gym, Wednesdays, the kids are in the gym. We're a little bit more fo- focused on some of the systems and things like that, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Thursday, we have our own day. And then you play Friday, Saturday, and we got video and individual video and a lot of t- fun team building things throughout the week too. So it's a good structure and we, we tweak it as we need to. So, yeah, it seems like you uh, need
0: your lunch pail for, for that kind of program, but in the best way possible, Uh, if you weren't doing those types of things, I feel like you're leaving a lot on the table as we all know, the playing careers are not that long and it'll be gone before you know it. So better put in the work.
1: Absolutely. And the kids want to, I mean, we've, we've been very fortunate to have, you know, both years I've been in Janesville, kids don't want to get off the ice. It's awesome to see, you know, they're, we, you know, even towards the end of the year, like we had to drag them off the ice, you know, because they'll stay out there for three, three and a half hours working on things. And I think you see that in the young players today, they want to get better. They don't want to just get out of the rink. They just want somebody to encourage them or work with them. And um, so after two years in Janesville, I think I need a new pair of skates because we put in a a lot of hours on the ice, but it's been fun.
0: Yeah, and I'm curious, now that you, you've completed your second year here, maybe what are some reflections, some things you've learned, some things that you've implemented that have been great successes, etc. cetera. Um, I mean, you've probably learned in dog years, given the fact that uh, you didn't come from junior hockey, you came from college route, but we're able to take a lot
1: of that goodness back to juniors. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, without even talking about, Last year, you know, this year was, first of all, when, you, you, when you're coaching Division three hockey, it's a blessing and a curse. You play a 25-game schedule. So I, I remember when I coached Division three, I loved the fact that it was a, a shorter schedule because it was so intense. But at the same time, it always left you wishing you wanted to play more games. There's too many practices. I want to play more games. Then you get to junior hockey, and it's 60 games. You know, this is like 40 weeks of hockey over and over again. And so um, this year we learned one of, I've, I've definitely learned just the, the length of the season and working to keep the kids engaged throughout a long season, um, finding little different challenges throughout the year, um, doing things differently to keep things fresh. And um, while also maintaining the routine and structure that we talked about earlier, But this year, I, we had a really short summer last year, uh, where it was really difficult with COVID the year before to get out and scout players. You were doing everything online or via phone calls with coaches or agents or whoever. Um, so going into the draft, I don't think we were, and the tendering process, we probably weren't, it wasn't a normal year. You couldn't have players come skate and get to know them as much, uh, and then it was like our season ended in June, and then you know seven eight weeks later our team was back. A brand new team is back, and you're getting ready to start this long journey together. And you, we really didn't have a lot of time to plan and get things ready, and so we did our best. And we we had a assistant coach move on, um, and so we were had to hire a new assistant coach and. You know, then it's training camp and then you're going to the Blaine showcase and, you know, you blink and you're up in Alaska for two weeks. And we we were in a position too, being the youngest team the previous year. We had, I think, nine, eight or nine players start the year in the USHL. And so we had this team and it was kind of looking at it like, OK, you know, we may or may not get some players back. And um, it turned out we didn't really get any of them back. Um, not early on. We got one back later. So we ended up starting the year three and 12 and, you know, it was definitely not the start you're looking for. And, uh, it was a very trying time for the players and the coaches and it was not expected, you know, especially considering this, this season we had the year before, but we were able to dig our way out and we had a tremendous second half and, um, we were, yeah, just a lot of lessons along the way, a lot of hard ones, um, Yeah, Let's dig into those.
0: What what are some of those beautiful lessons? I feel like that's the key that we need to spread the goodness into the hockey world. I'm excited. You got
1: me riled. Yeah. I think honestly, we, we turned it around. Like we were three, I think we were like three and nine going into this Alaska trip and the kids were pretty down and the coaches were, we, you know, we were hanging on and we went up there and uh, we ended up losing the first two games um, against Anchorage and that made us three and 11. And now you have a, a full week in Alaska go, and now you go from Anchorage to Fairbanks and knowing we have to play Fairbanks three games in a row up in Fairbanks. It's a really hard place to play. And that week was, it was a grind. It was uh, it was a huge challenge because, Everybody knew the position we were in and the record, and there was a lot of pressure. And so, just managing the emotions of 17, 18, 19 year old kids and like trying to keep it light while also emphasizing the urgency of needing to win some games in Fairbanks or at least get things moving in the right direction. Um, And I don't think there was one or two things that changed, it was just continuing to believe as a group. And manage our emotions so that we didn't implode or, or even subconsciously quit. And we we just so happened uh, we lost the first game in Fairbanks, so that was zero and three on that that road trip. That put us at three and twelve. And again, it wasn't any miracle speech or one player that stepped up or anything like that. It was we just showed up the next day. And all season long, we kind of had a 1-0 and o mentality. Like, just when you're, in, when you're in as bad a place as we were, it really does force you. The only thing you can take care of is that game. Like, we're not going to be 500 tonight. We just have to win a game. And then it was like we won on Friday night, the, you know, the second game in Fairbanks, and everybody just took a breath. Like, the, you know, it was like, thank God we got one. And then we got the next one. And played really well. And so now you're flying home and the, the plane rides pretty jubilant and kids are happy and you start believing like, you know, maybe we can do this. And then, you know, in the second half of the season, I think we had the, the best record in the North American League and we had an 11 game winning streak. Um, and what it did do is through through all the good times, um, it definitely I think as players and coaches, we appreciated the wins a little bit more considering what we had been through. Um, and you know, it built resilience and, and maybe not even just for this year for the kids, but down the road, they're going to hit a rough patch with the team or as a person or as a player. And they'll probably look back and be like, geez, I was three and 12 in Fairbanks, Alaska. and I was able to turn that around so I can probably turn this around.
0: Yeah, that's, that's quite the story. I love hearing that. Um, because because life will hand you adversity it's just when and how well you would, you handle it right so it's it's awesome to you're almost thankful for the adversity uh obviously once it's passed especially yeah not at the
1: time but after yeah
0: yeah not at the time but after the fact oh, absolutely i always uh correlate it to the golf ball you know like why does a golf ball have dimples i don't know what, what's the answer to that one helps it helps it fly better so it's like you get all And the reason they found this out is they used to try to make perfectly round golf balls. Okay. They wouldn't fly that well, but as they started getting nicks from getting hit, they used to fly better and better. So then someone started putting them on there purposely. So I always say like, Hey, we need a little nicks. We need a little adversity to hit. So that way we can have a more controlled, better trajectory going forward. Yeah. I like that. So the dimples actually help the ball go further and help it in controlling
1: it so that you can shape the shot better. I think sometimes this year the, the dimples felt like chunks, big chunks coming out of the, out of the ball. <laughs>
0: Either way, it helped to get where you where you should be. Right. Oh, that's awesome. That's great to hear. Um, I'm, I'm curious. I, I have two other big areas that I want to focus on and one that I'm very passionate about. Cause I think a lot of times coaches come in and impose their will on a team and, I was, uh, it was Donald Rumsfeld who uh, gave the great quote, you go to the war with, you go to war with the army that you have, not the army you wish you had. I'm curious kind of what that means to you, because I believe that you're very much one to coach what you have, not the one or
1: the team that you wish you had. Yeah, actually, it's funny. I I was having this conversation with a coach colleague, not a hockey coach, but uh, um, a really smart guy. And we had chatted about is culture and, and I don't know the answer to this. I, there's a lot to unpack and it, the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle is, you know, is culture defined a more, more so about what you allow or what you can create? You know, do you create a culture or is it more about what you allow people to get away with and what your standards are? And it is probably somewhere in the middle. And I think what you learn is every team is, it's just so different and it's, it has a life of its own and you can't force, you know, I know as coaches we all want teams that are competitive and have high character and all these things, but, you know, some years you might have a team that's just a group of Mavericks and with hot, you know, high, high level personalities, and it can be volatile at times, but it's probably ultra competitive and it's probably very high maintenance to coach that group, but you can be successful with that group and it can be a lot of fun. And then other years you might have a quiet group who's well-reserved and well-mannered, but they have the talent and the skill. You just have to push them a little bit. And we try to recruit the right player and the right kid, but I don't think any of us ever gets it right. So sometimes you do, you you know, this is what you're working with. And how can you be successful with that group? And how can you push a little bit, um, push them in the right direction to be more competitive or, you know, more whatever you're looking for. Um, So, yeah, I think you just learn like, as the season goes, you definitely early on have to have your standards and values. Like you have to give, especially junior hockey players, you have to give them a, hey, listen, this is kind of what we're going to tolerate and what we're not going to and what our vision is. But I don't know if you can sit there day one and be like, after a summer of thinking, this is what our team's culture and philosophy and everything's going to be. I think you kind of grow into it throughout the year. You move, you add pieces and push pieces, and you know, hopefully, get the that synergy within the group that clicks. And not a, some years it does, and more years it doesn't. But you're tr- you're just trying to move pieces and figure out what the pulse of the group is. If that makes sense. Yeah, you're trying
0: to move the group in the in a positive direction, and every team has their own personality that you try to best mentor. That's kind of the way I I take that. Um, Because, you know, people are people, you can't force it. They want to have to do it and the internal motivation. And I think that's the true art of coaching is how do you help people want things or figure out the best way to motivate themselves to do the things they know they need to do to accomplish the goals they've set for themselves. And, that's that's the art of coaching. There's the science behind it. And you know, there's the you have to create some kind of standard, some kind of accountability, ways of working, whatever that may be, that you know, we all as coaches hold tried and true, but at the same point,
1: uh at the end of the day, we're we're not the ones doing the work. Yeah, no, they're doing it. And it's it's funny, like it's it's like one of the biggest conversations I hear hockey coaches, hockey, it's the most prevalent. Hockey were so traditional that captaincy matters beyond belief who's the captain of the team you wear the letter on your jersey it's like it's it's a huge deal and it's a huge honor i got to be a captain and i i understand that but i think in the sport of hockey more so than any other sport there's this like mythical importance that comes with being a captain but every year you know i i talk to these other coaches like how do you pick captains do you do it at the end of the year And have the team vote on the next year's captains or do you do it in training camp or the next year? And do you have one C and two A's or do you have one C and three A's or do you have a home C and then two A? like there's a million different dynamics. And I think early on in my coaching career, you're like, Oh, you, you can only have one captain. You can't be doing this three captain thing. And then the next year you have a group that doesn't have a clearly defined leader. It's, it's very much more group leadership based so if you're stuck in your ways with like no i only do one captain you might lose your team right there because two guys are upset that they you whatever so you have to every year just presents a different challenge but a different dynamic that you have to work within
0: true that uh Yeah, that's so true. Absolutely. Some, some years I don't even give out a C it's just nothing but A's Yeah. or you just let the group be what it's going to be. But, uh, you should only, I always, I always tell fellow coaches, like you should only hand out the C when you're 100% sure of who you want it to be. Otherwise it's probably going to create more problems than not. Um, and you don't have it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It's it's
1: very hard to take back. It's we, we, we had that this year. We didn't we didn't announce it the till game twenty one, and I look back and I'm like, it was good to be more patient than too quick with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Always more patient when you're handing out letters. Yes, uh, that'll get you in trouble real quick. So, uh, young coaches out there, please take note of that. That last one. Yeah. Um, moving, moving on to my last section here. I really want to just talk about details within the game. You know, a lot of coaches, especially when we're talking of moving from U18 or U16 into juniors and juniors into uh college or pros or wherever the destination may be heck you're going to be beer league. You know what what are some key details that you're trying to develop in your players uh like you know one for me I try to teach is angling 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 like for me that's a key detail of the game. Uh you know how do we think offensive rushes like those are things that get on my mind but you know, other coaches. It's all about stick detail, stick detail, stick detail, stick detail. Curious, what are some of the details that you really
1: harp on? I mean, there's. It seems like there's probably a lot we could go through. Um, I guess away with the puck. You know, away from the puck. Uh, you know, being aware, and you know, we call it a a a gaff meter you know, like you're, you're, give a whatever meter um, just being aware and caring without the puck. And you can see a lot of that just in body language, like in D zone coverage, or when a guy's back checking or defending a rush or looking to pick somebody up a lot of, you can, you can tell how usually like, how good is this guy at defending based on his body language and his effort? You know, it's really, it really, and then, you know, awareness plays a part in it, but like just look like you, you got to care. You got to have your knees bent. You got to have, you know, a strong top hand. You have to make sure your eyes are moving and your head's moving. You're communicating verbally and non-verbally. Um, so that's without the puck, we really like, you got to care. And it's as simple as like moving your feet on a back check. Like that's an easy way to show everybody that you care about tracking is moving your feet. Um, Angles are important too. And, and I feel like angles for us, it's more technique based. Um, And then with the puck, uh, some of the details is having a, like a positive first touch, you know, being able to receive passes or put pucks in areas that are away from the defender, you know, like what happens after your first touch of the puck, is it in a better spot for you? Is it in a better spot for your teammate or is it vulnerable? Is, does it bounce off your stick? Were you not ready for it? Like what happens? And that's something like soccer talks a lot about too. You know, European football is just their first touch. What happens? Is it, are you, are you advancing the the puck? Like what's going on? So that's something we track too. Like what happens after a player's first touch? Is it going this way in a better spot than it was, or is it going this way because we weren't ready for it or because we turned it over. Um, so that's a big one. And then another one that I know I'm, I'm sure a lot of coaches talk about is finishing inside. Just, it's as simple as, you know, your dad probably told you, this as a youth player, like go to the net and stop and good things happen. I think the speed of the game is, is great, but with the speed, it's a lot more like take the puck to the net and go behind the net or fly by and, um, just encouraging players and even the defenseman like finish inside and the rebound pops out or eventually the goalie gets uncomfortable because you're continually finishing inside. Um, so those are, those are some, I'm sure there's other ones that I can't think of off the top of my head, but some ones that come to mind.
0: So you're tracking the fact, um, or the detail of the first touch. I'm curious to hear more about what exactly you track, because I think a first touch is a very, very good thing to track because it sets up the next play. And then you're talking about playmaking chains of events, et cetera. So I'm curious to see what else you track. Yeah. So
1: it's like, did we advance it? Like did the pot get advanced? It's, and it really, it's, if you wanted to do it individually based, it could literally, you you could pick your categories that go into the positive side. You know, the puck moves a zone, or, you know, the player catches it and starts skating it. So we're transporting it up the ice. Um, you moved it directly to another player, you know, you could have your positives and then maybe, uh, I mean, obviously a turnover's a minus, um, the puck goes back into the zone because you kind of bobbled it and then you have to bring it back. You know, that could be a minus. Uh, so we, we track kind of various areas of the ice and what happens with it. And it basically just comes down to is it, and that's how we've kind of broken it down a positive or negative first touch. And, you know, our players see it and they talk about it. And um, if you, and you see them get better at it because you focus on it in, in practice and you hear the kids you know, if, if they miss a pass or it bounces off this, their stick, you know, they're not, it's not, Hey, catch the pass. Just like first touch, first touch, first touch. So I think it gets in their minds too. Like I got to be ready for this, but not only do I have to be ready, I need to be ready for the next play. Cause now I want to, a part of my positive first touch is to advance the puck and to know what I'm going to do with it next. So I get it and then I'm going to give it. And now you're like, there's two in a row two positive first touches. Now we have a zone entry with speed possession. We might score a goal literally simply by making a pass, having two positive first touches. But if we have a negative first touch on that first pass, second play never happens. The puck's still in our zone. So it it becomes kind of part of your identity. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Is there
0: any other stats that you're tracking or any other key areas that you're, keying in on beyond
1: just the first touch? <clears throat> Every team's different. Um, we get, and, and I'm sure you're familiar, like it, the league works with Instat, which is an incredible, incredible platform uh, that I've been using for four years. And I'm probably like 6% into all the information that they have. You know, How do just, you how- ever go back? <laughs> you can't, It's you can't ever go back. Once you have it, it doesn't matter. They can charge you three times the amount and you're just like, I need it. I'll never be able to do this again. There's not enough time in the day, but it's, it is almost information overload. So you have to kind of look at it and be like, I can't care about all this. What are the things that matter to our team and to our potential team success? And then we'll care about those things, you know, and, and for us, I think this year, because of the players we had, something that we looked at a lot was, you know, shots inside the house, of the house, and then odd man rushes for and against. We weren't the type of team, every team's different. Like, we didn't shoot it from everywhere and try to shoot to break teams down and get rebounds. We felt like if we shot it from the outside aimlessly and missed the net, like, that's, that's a turnover. So we weren't as worried about shot attempts or shots on goal, more about where the shot's coming from and are they high quality. So we're all in agreement here that uh, point shots suck, right? Well, point shots from the sideboards that miss the net wide definitely do suck. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah. They're they're awful. But I'm glad that uh, you're talking about it because I feel like – that is such an insightful piece into how high-level hockey is played, which is inside, whether you said finishing inside, shooting from the inside and finding ways to do that. That's
1: massive. Well, and, then, and another really basic thing, and this, you know, you asked about the what details we find important. So we talk a ton about finishing inside and stopping in front. So then that that is connected with You know, another stat that we do track, that's probably, again, something that your dad told you when you were six years old. You got a lot better chance of scoring if you hit the net more often than not than if you, you know, put a bar down one out of every 10 times. And so, you know, it it does sound old school, like hit the net, hit the net. But if we're going to take one of those shots from outside, outside of the scoring area, And if you're in the scoring area and you're one-on-one with the goalie and you can get your head up and you can pick that corner or you can see high glove or right by the ear, listen, we want to give our players free reign to take that shot and have confidence to make it. But if the puck's bouncing or you're off balance or you're outside of a a grade-A scoring area, maybe you're outside the dots, then it's 100% your responsibility to, to extend the play by making sure that puck gets on the net, not in the goalie's chest area. And now if we're doing a good job with that detail of finishing inside, we're getting rebounds and we're probably getting second, third opportunities. But if we miss the net, it doesn't matter if we finish inside. We don't get the rebound. And I'm sure the kids get sick of hearing extend the play if you're going to take that shot man it's it's high level junior a hockey so they can they can hit the net they just have to it's focus you just tried to go bar down or you weren't thinking about extending the play you're thinking about scoring and so once they do it and have success and they're like wow and it's not always like the pass off pad stuff but you, you put it in his chest it just kills the play
0: yeah, I mean, what was it, 90%, we'll say 90% of shots don't end in a goal. So how do we start thinking about maybe extending to shot recoveries and hitting the net is a lot better than missing high and wide and rimming it around, and that is a turnover just as much as dumping and
1: changing. Well, we like we, we worked on it. The guy that really brought this to light for our team was our goalie coach you know he was just like hey we're we're not extending the play enough and i was like what does that mean like yes i agree with you and he's like well when we take low percent like low percentage scoring chance shots we're not getting good enough second opportunities from that and i was like that's a really good point we're not getting any second opportunities how do we do it and so he chatted with the players about areas on the goalie that would result in the most rebounds. And they, you know, the kids ate it up, you know, it's not just off the pad it's here's an area inside his arm that he's going to have trouble. So now when they're shooting, even if it's subconsciously or at the last second, they're like, I'm going to stay away from his glove because if I throw this muffin from outside the dots, anywhere around here, he catches it whistle. Now we have a face off. But if we put it where Larry told us, I might even get that rebound and score or I get a point and they all have points. So everybody wins. Everyone wins. Listen to the goalies more often. I yeah. love it. Um, and
0: just just a snippet of, of absolute gold and what you just said, and I want to make sure that everyone picks up on it, is the fact that low percentage shots, so outside of the house, also result in low percentage rebounds and shot recoveries. Chances that are from inside the house result in better rebounds. So it's not just, oh, you throw from the outside to get a rebound. Well, that's still low. Like you're still right. creating the quality. So I just want to make sure that everyone is aware of that golden nugget you just dropped on us. So thank
1: you. No problem.
0: All right. Well, uh, this was an absolute... Gem of an episode. Uh, I'll give you two minutes here at the end to talk about anything you want, anything we did, we missed, uh, whether it be another detail. I felt like we were going down such a great rabbit hole, so I think we might have to come back and circle on this wagon again.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. Let me think. I mean, I think all coaches. One of the details that they try to implement in their team is competitiveness. You know, and and how to breed competitiveness and practice and the funny thing is so all of us coaches we you know we're learning along the way and we kind of need our own coaches too you know or we need especially that you know as a head coach you need somebody to talk to and bounce things off of and um, I'm very fortunate I work with uh, a guy who who does that and we were chatting about this season one of the challenges we had with our team is and I don't know if it was because we were young or just the group we had, like we were chatting about earlier, every team is built a little different and the personalities are different. Our team was ultra competitive to the point where, you know, I was chatting with this, this coach mentor of mine, and we, we had to talk about like stopping playing small area games or not keeping score anymore because, and we had to completely get rid of like any sort of like, if you lose, you skate, because it would just be meltdown city, you know? So it was, our team was so competitive, but it bordered on volatile that we had to actually really think outside the box as to different things we could do that had no consequences to still get the same result and the same development piece without having this like competitiveness to it. So I thought it was interesting that, you know, we had a group this year that, you know, as coaches, we talk, all do all these small area games and get them to compete and one on ones in the corner. And, you know, maybe you just have a group that you don't need to, you know, really push that as much. Um, you know, we, we showed the clip from what's the Jackie moon movie semi-pro. Yeah. Semi-pro. Yeah. So there's a, that funny scene where the team's kind of bitching at each other and Will Farrell like yells at him like everybody love everybody, like you know, and he's getting all fired up and it's hard not to laugh. So we like showed that clip before practice this year. And when we would put out our practice plan in the locker room and on the ice, we would still we still, I mean, so much of what they learn comes from small area games. Like we all know at this point, hopefully, as coaches, that playing is a great way to develop those habits and details and skills and So we still have to do small area games. We just don't want them ready to fight each other in the locker room. So what do we do? So we showed this clip and on our practice plan, it would be whatever the small area game was and the focus, which, you know, we put all the, each drill that we do, there's a focus and the kids are supposed to read it. And hopefully they do sometimes they don't, but beside it was ELE. This is an ELE small area game. And so by the end of the year, we tell the kids like, you guys know what ELE means, right? And they're like, yeah, everybody love everybody. So they couldn't bitch. They couldn't, they might lose three, two, but they had to work through losing. And it was just a fascinating kind of, and it, it honestly, Greg, like if it, it forced them to like manage their emotions better.
0: That's exactly like, what I was thinking about. I was like, this is just like the biggest micro cause a situation around managing your emotions and not just getting rattled to the point where you can't function and like everybody love everybody is literally just saying like hey it's
1: okay tomorrow tomorrow the sun
0: is gonna rise and we'll go get back at her
1: yeah like we're all on the same team like i know you're wearing a gray jersey today and they're wearing a navy jersey but your buddy and also might be your line mate just scored a really sweet goal in four on two power play game you don't need to snap and try to break your stick or let it ruin your day like go give them a tap on the shin pads and let's move on here so it was fun which I mean as coaches we a lot of us don't have that skill and for 17 18 year old players when they lose a four on two power play game on a Thursday for a lot of them it's the same as losing a game on Friday so it does help you learn to manage emotions and yeah it was fun.
0: Yeah. They're, they're, you know, still got some testosterone going. So that's, that's Um, fun. But, uh, yeah, thank you again, Parker for, uh, coming on. This was a wonderful episode. I'm excited to release
1: it. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me and you're doing great work. And, you know, I know you're building this thing through your newsletter and podcast and Twitter and, um, just keep doing the great work you're doing, man. Sounds good. We'll we'll continue you and I to take over the
0: hockey world in a positive manner. I love it. Sounds good. Take care. Thanks for having me. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe
1: to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch a Buttes here next week for a brand new episode.